I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 24. Paul's concluding greetings in Romans 16 give us an interesting glimpse into the life of the early church. There are four parts to the section. We start with words of commendation for Phoebe. Then Paul greets everybody he knows in Rome. Then we get a final short exhortation, and we end up with greetings from Paul's associates. We'll move through each part one by one, starting with the commendation of Phoebe in the first two verses of chapter 16. Let's read that. Romans 16, 1-2 I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church which is at Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints, and that you help her in whatever matter she may have need of you. For she herself has been a helper of many, and of myself as well. Phoebe's our most likely candidate as the person who delivered the letter from Paul to the Romans, and even though that's not stated specifically here, it explained why she had traveled to Rome and why Paul mentions her in the letter. Also, she's coming from Sincrea, which was a port town eight miles from Corinth, where Paul likely wrote the letter to the Romans. We do not have information in the Bible about the planning of the church in Sincrea, which reminds us that Paul's goal in establishing churches in major cities like Corinth was for the church there to serve as a base for the surrounding countryside. For example, when he wrote 2 Corinthians, Paul addressed it to the church of God which is at Corinth with all the saints who are throughout Achaia. In Paul's day, Achaia was the Roman province that included the whole Peloponnesian peninsula with the central cities of Corinth and Athens. Paul's letter to Corinth was meant for the whole region, and Corinth was a base for gospel ministry and apparently saw success in planting a church in the nearby town of Sincrea. Acts 18.18 records Paul leaving Corinth at the end of his second missionary journey. The text says he put out to sea for Syria, and since Corinth did not have a port, we would assume that he set out from Sincrea, which the next sentence affirms. Luke writes, In Sincrea he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. Luke also tells us that Priscilla and Aquila were with Paul on this journey. These are those tantalizing details in the narrative that make you want more. You know, what was the church like in Sincrea? How well did Paul know the believers there? Did Phoebe host him and Priscilla and Aquila before they left? Where did Paul go for a haircut? Now, we don't have much, but we can imagine when Paul commends Phoebe to the Romans, she may already at least have two friends there in Priscilla and Aquila. Paul calls Phoebe a diakonos. Some Bibles translate this as servant, and some Bibles as deacon. In the normal use of the Greek, the word means servant and should apply to all members of a church. We're all servants of Christ. The trouble with a word like diakonos is that even though it had a typical use, it began at some point to carry the more technical meaning of deacon. Paul started to use the word technically in his later letters to the Philippians and to Timothy to refer to a certain ministry role in the church He uses it in the same context with elder, showing us that it wasn't the same as elder or overseer. It's a a different role. In his words here in Romans, Paul connects the word to the church. Phoebe's not just a diakonos in general. She was a diakonos of the church which is at Sincrea. And that suggests to me that she served a recognized ministry role in that church. So the word deacon as a title could apply. Paul says that she's been a helper of many, and of myself as well. That's another interesting word to use. The Greek noun prostatus, translated here as helper, is only used this once in the Bible. 
Paul does use the verb, which can mean to give aid to someone or can mean to preside over someone. Some scholars think this means that Phoebe performed a leadership role of presiding over the church in Sincrea. That seems unlikely since Paul says that Phoebe performed this function for him as well. And we do not see anyone in the churches Paul planted as presiding over Paul. Douglas Moo recommends understanding the word according to its Greek use as a benefactor or patron. He writes, A patron was one who came to the aid of others, especially foreigners, by providing housing and financial aid and by representing their interests. Phoebe then was probably a woman of high social standing and some wealth who put her status, resources, and time at the services of traveling Christians like Paul who needed help and support. So Paul seems to be asking the Roman Christians to provide for Phoebe in the same way that she has provided for others. She's partnered with Paul in the ministry of the gospel, and Paul wants to make sure she's taken care of. After commending Phoebe, Paul moves on to greet about 26 individuals and five groups. Some interpreters have pointed out the oddity of Paul knowing so many people in a church he's never visited before. Some then question whether this greeting is original to Paul or added by someone else later. It's so different from his other letters. Why does he not likewise greet a long list of people in the churches he established, for example, when he writes the Thessalonians or the Galatians? That seems to me to be asking the question without thinking it through. We all know the trouble of communicating to groups of people, whether you're inviting people to your birthday party or your wedding or you're thanking them in an acceptance speech. As soon as you include Bob and Mary, then you better not leave out Janice, Tom, or Harry. But if you include them, what about Roy or Harriet? It's tough to find a clear boundary. The more people you mention by name, the more likely you are to leave someone out and hurt or offend them. The safest approach in writing to a church he had planted is to mention only those absolutely necessary and just greet everyone as a group. That's what Paul does. Here I believe Paul is mentioning every single Christian he knows in Rome. It's a significant number, but manageable. It also serves a triple purpose. A lot of the people Paul mentions are active in ministry. So this probably serves to build Paul's ethos or credibility. He's not just dropping names. These are people that he has real relationship with. And if others in Rome respect these brothers and sisters, as Paul does, then it will help them see Paul positively and strengthen the bridge between them and his gospel message. Because Paul feels such personal love and warmth for his partners in the gospel, his communication here also builds pathos. If I were there and heard Paul speaking this kindly about people I love and I respect, that would continue to strengthen that bridge between me and his message. Paul's aware how important the relational context can be for the positive communication of the gospel. I said Paul accomplishes three purposes. Not only does he employ ethos and pathos to enable the reception of his message, but at the same time he builds up his fellow workers. He gives them honor. He acknowledges his own indebtedness to them. He points out their hard work and commitment to the gospel. Imagine Paul writing to your church and including your name here in the list of greetings. I imagine that he doesn't want you to boast in anything except what Christ has accomplished through you, but this does not prevent him from recognizing your faith and love in action. Imagine how these brothers and sisters in Christ might have felt as we read through the greeting. This is Romans 16, 3-16. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, 
to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that's in their house. Greet Epinetus, my beloved, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who's worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Unia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Greet Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsman. Greet those of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who's worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philologus and Eulia and Neros and his sister and Olympus and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I love the encouragement Paul gives here. Can you imagine these words to you? You are my beloved in the Lord. You are my fellow prisoner. You are a choice man in the Lord. I see what you've been doing. I see your hard work. It just makes you want to keep it up. It makes you want to keep going for Jesus. Another exciting thing about this passage is the glimpse we get into the makeup of the early church. Paul mentions two house churches. If Priscilla and Aquila are doing the same tent-making work they were doing with Paul, then their house church was not meeting in a wealthy home. They likely had an apartment above their shop, a common practice in Rome. Jews were not allowed to assemble in large numbers, and at this time Christians were generally considered a sect of Judaism. A wealthy home may have allowed a large assembly of around 60, but I assume a gathering in an apartment above a shop would have been considerably smaller. Paul's reference in verse 14, and the brethren with them, and in verse 15, and all the saints who are with them, are also probably references to house churches. Those of Aristobulus in verse 10 and of Narcissus in verse 11 refer to members of the households of these men. A household could include family and slaves. It's not clear whether there were house churches in these two households. A study of names is not exact. A name normal for Roman citizens might also be given to a slave, or what appears to be a Roman name might be the Latin version of a Hebrew name. Still, the variety in this list of names suggests such a mixture of of male and female, Roman, Greek, and Jew, slave-free, and citizen. The church was not only for the low in society, and not only for the educated. The early church broke through gender, economic, and social barriers. You can imagine hurrying along narrow streets among white stone buildings four or five stories high with red clay tile roofs. The stone streets are worn smooth from centuries of wear. And you come to Aquila's shop and turn in at the narrow door, heading up a flight of stone steps to be welcomed in by Priscilla. There are people there who you could never imagine interacting with socially, not before you came to Christ. But now you grasp hands warmly and greet each other with a kiss. I'd like to speak a bit about the prominence of women in this section. I don't want to address right now the theological issue of gender roles in church and in family. My practice through this series is to address the theological issues raised by Paul in Romans, 
and he doesn't speak about gender roles here. I still want to make a few comments because there's information here that informs the gender roles discussion. To simplify the discussion, I'll refer to three different positions regarding gender roles, complementarian, egalitarian, and authoritarian. These words have different meanings for different people. Some people who call themselves complementarian really act like authoritarians. I say that because I think my position is complementarian. But on the one hand, I don't always agree with others who call themselves complementarian. And on the other hand, I do not always like the way egalitarians describe complementarians. That's okay. I'm sure some egalitarians do not like the way they're pictured by complementarians. But that's the nature of disagreement. Now, I know I'm on dangerous ground even bringing up this subject because there's a lot of pain and frustration and injustice wrapped around gender issues. There's a lot of valid emotion and a lot of confusion. So I'm going to try anyway just to say a bit. I define a complementarian as one who recognizes equality and partnership among men and women in the family and church, while also recognizing that God has reserved certain leadership roles for men, not based on skill or competence or value, but based on gender. An egalitarian recognizes the first, that there's an equality and partnership among men and women in the family and church, but does not recognize a limitation of roles based on gender. An authoritarian does not recognize equality and partnership, but sees the man set above the woman. The woman is not beside the man, but below the man. That's the one I would outright reject. To study this issue biblically, we'd need to start by setting aside for a moment all the failure of the church. At some point, we would have to address prejudice against women in the church. At some point, we would also need to address the positive and negative movements in society. But to develop a biblical worldview, we would start by trying to put those issues aside and make an attempt to renew our minds according to the teaching of Scripture. We start from Scripture. To do that, we'd need to look at places where the Bible gives us specific teaching about gender roles in the New Covenant. That means we'd need to study closely 1 Corinthians 11-14, to Ephesians 5, and 1 Timothy 2. And since all three of these passages refer back to the creation, we'd also need to go back and study Genesis 1-3. through This would be a significant study because we would want to look not only at the individual passages, but also at the books as a whole in order to understand the context of the specific passages. We'd also want to look at the role of women through Scripture. And I think we would especially want to look at how Jesus interacts with women and how Paul interacts with women. Romans 16 just gives us a bit of this last task, showing us just something about how Paul interacts with women. It's not going to help us develop a biblical theology of gender roles. It doesn't help us decide between complementarian and egalitarian. But it does give us some interesting information that would need to be included in a thorough study. Here are four things, as a complementarian, that I find very interesting in Romans 16. First, I find it interesting that Paul refers to Phoebe as a deaconess of the church in Sincrea. And I've already said that I think deacon is the right translation here, not servant. I think Paul is most likely referring to a ministry role that Phoebe holds in that church, which fits with the word deacon. Second, I find it interesting that Priscilla's name is mentioned before Aquila's name. And whatever the reason we come up with for that, in Paul's day, 
writing the wife's name first would have been very unusual and would have given some kind of preference to Priscilla. Paul did not feel the need to defend Aquila's honor or position by mentioning him first. Paul does mention Aquila first on some other occasions in Scripture, but it's interesting to consider why. And here he didn't feel the need to do so. Here we have Priscilla, or Prissa as he's using her short name, mentioned first. Third, I find it interesting that the name sometimes translated in 16.7 as the feminine Unia and sometimes as the masculine Unius has much more support as a woman's name than as a man's name. While there's a possibility that it's a form of a masculine name, commentators before the 13th century all assume it's a feminine name. And while we've no evidence of its use as a Latin male name, it was used commonly as a female name. The pair of Andronicus and Unia seem most likely to be husband and wife. And the most likely translation for the rest of the verse is that this married pair were counted among the apostles. That's why it's interesting. Unia is counted with Andronicus among the apostles. The text is not suggesting that Andronicus and Unia were apostles in the most technical sense. That applied specifically to 12 men, with Paul as the lone exception in his special role as apostle to the Gentiles. In Acts 2, when the apostles replaced Judas, we see that the intention was to maintain the symbolic number 12 and that there were really strict limitations on who could even fulfill that role. But the word apostle was not a special Greek word. It had a common meaning. It just meant messenger. It's kind of like we've already talked about the word for servant, which generally meant servant, but it could mean deacon. So the word for apostle, apostolos, is just the word for messenger. The word takes on a special meaning in the New Testament in two contexts. The apostles of Jesus are the most limiting context. There are just 12 of them. The word also began to be used in the sense of missionary, those who went out as messengers of the gospel. This would be a natural way to take the word in the case of Adronicus and Unia. They were among those sent out as messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fourth, mentioning even one woman by name as a valued partner would have been a radical exception among first century writers. You don't acknowledge women. Of the 26 valued co-workers mentioned here by Paul, somewhere between 9 and 11 of them are women. Taking these four observations into consideration, we can then ask, what do these facts suggest about Paul's relationship to women in the work of the gospel? The facts don't really help us with the egalitarian versus complementarian question of whether or not the role of elder or pastor is one assigned only to men or whether it can be assigned to men and women. That doesn't come up clearly here. What does seem clear to me is that Paul trusted women. Paul valued women. Paul respected the contribution of women. Paul envisioned a movement where women took up important roles in the building of the church and the furtherance of the gospel. Paul concludes this section with a call to greet one another with a holy kiss. I thought that was odd until I moved to Croatia. We don't normally greet each other that way in our church, but we do on special occasions of congratulation, or if you visit somebody's home on a holiday— I remember the first time a big, partially shaven guy kissed me on each cheek at Christmas, 
It made me feel like I finally belonged in Croatia. You just have to be sure to lean to the right to make sure the kiss lands on the cheek. That's the only important thing to know. Paul concludes this section with a general greeting from all the churches. All the churches greet you guys. And then he moves on to his exhortation. This is a final warning. It's in verses 17 to 20. Let's read that. Romans 16, 17 to 20. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. It was typical for Paul to include a final exhortation in his letters, and this one's a warning. The warning continues to paint for us the picture of the early church. Though the church in Rome seemed healthy and well-led, Paul recognized the need for alertness against those who would introduce teaching contrary to the gospel message. Though this young movement has managed to grow despite the earlier crisis of Jewish leaders being expelled from Rome, and though this young movement has experienced leadership trusted by Paul, they are still vulnerable to false teaching from men or women who rise up among them. By reminding the Romans that he's aware of their obedience, Paul communicates that his warning is not based on any report of misbehavior. He's communicating based on his experience as a church planter and leader. In this time of new growth, he wants them on guard to the reality that some men or women will put themselves forward with a false view of the gospel. This is one more reason for Paul to write it down so that they would have a written message to come back to. And so it serves a clear warning to us. There will always be men and women assuming the name of Christ and calling others away from the teaching we have received. We stand firm on the authoritative word of Scripture, that teaching that we have received. To be wise in what is good speaks to our practice, that we would wisely present ourselves as instruments of righteousness. To be innocent in what is evil does not mean to be naive in our knowledge, but innocent in our practice. It wasn't wrong for Adam and Eve to learn about evil and so judge Satan. That was their job. They're supposed to rule as king and queen over the creation. It was wrong for them to seek to learn about evil through disobedience. We don't learn about evil by trying it out. We seek to remain innocent in the practice of evil, and we learn from the word of God. So though Jesus has conquered the powers of sin and death, we're still engaged in a struggle with evil. God has not yet crushed Satan's head under his foot. We are still in the already not yet transition of our salvation. Jesus has already won but we wait for the final act when he will crush the head of Satan. And this is a reference back to Genesis 3.15. The snake continues to strike out at the seed of Eve, the believing remnant, trying to destroy the gospel community. We need to be wise about the real danger that exists. Still, we know who wins. The God of peace will win. And that's a strange combination of words, peace and crushing the head. Being the God of peace does not mean being a pacifist. For peace to reign, 
Satan must be engaged, defeated, and crushed. The God of peace will bring about this final victory when the time is right, when he's completed his rescue mission of calling men and women into his kingdom. Paul's final blessing builds on all that he's been teaching us. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. And these aren't just nice spiritual words. By God's grace, we've been saved from the evil one. By God's grace, our gospel community can continue to grow and thrive. And by God's grace, the evil one will be eternally vanquished. And then peace will reign. The greeting section concludes with some shout-out from Paul's associates. Let's read that in verses 21 to 24. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me, and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Cordus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Of course, we know Timothy, the most consistent of Paul's younger co-workers. There's a Lucius in Antioch, Acts 13.1, but we've no reason to believe that Lucius is the same as this Lucius. Jason may be the Jason from Thessalonica, Acts 17.5-9, and Sosipater may be the same Sopater from Berea in Acts 24. Paul is regularly involving others in his mission. Since Thessalonica and Berea are in Macedonia, these men could have joined Paul to take the financial gift from those Gentile churches to Jerusalem. You know, maybe that's why they're there. Tertius served as Paul's secretary for writing down Romans. It's interesting to see Paul giving him the opportunity to say hello, you know, himself. He writes it with his own hand. Gaius may have been the Gaius from 1 Corinthians 1.14, since Paul likely wrote Romans from Corinth. It sounds like he hosted Paul at his home and hosted a house church there as well. Paul describes Erastus as a financial officer. Archaeology uncovered an inscription of an official named Erastus in Corinth. Perhaps this is the same man. And Cortus? We don't know anything about Cortus. Though that's true of most of Christian history, isn't it? The faithful saints have lived and served and loved and struggled without us ever knowing the details. We are just getting this little glimpse here into the life of the church. We're going to have a lot of questions to ask and a lot of stories to share in heaven. Verse 24 ends the greeting section with, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. We already had this up in verse 21. It seems probable that verse 24 is not original with Paul. But whether we should take both verses as original or whether we should take verse 21 over 24 or 24 over 21, it hardly seems to matter. They say the same thing. Paul liked to start his introductory greetings with a blessing of grace and peace, like grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans chapter 1 verse 7. And he liked to end similarly with a blessing of grace in the Lord Jesus. So from grace to grace, that's a good way for us to end this glimpse into the life of the early church. We come to faith through the grace of God. We are gathered into community through the grace of God. And we continue on by the grace of God. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.